This week's podcast is brought to you by our new sponsor or new partnership, LSKD. Yeah, they're a local Brisbane uh, business who, who like us, are trying to take over the world. They're obviously a, a, a great clothing brand who, you know, as James will attest to, we used to be fully kitted out in Lululemon, but now LSKD has come along and we're jumping on that bandwagon because it's better. Yeah. I've, I've just really enjoyed the quality of the clothes. They're a really good brand to work with. They share our values. Yeah, and, um, and we've yeah. worked with these to get this going. Like we wanted this <laughs> as well, just as yeah. much as them. So we're super pumped to have them on board. So by supporting LSKD, you are also supporting us and you are supporting the growth of this podcast. You get 10% off at checkout with the code REBUILD or you can follow the links in the show notes or go to our social media and click on the links and you will get 10% off with LSKD. Yeah, we can take care of your training and nutrition, but then let them deck you out and look good in all their clothes. I'm James Beatty. And I'm Sean Carroll. And welcome to the Rebuild Health and Fitness Podcast. All right, all good. Let's do it. All right, today we... Well, welcome back to the Rebuild Health and Fitness <laughs> Podcast, first off. Um, today, we welcome Dr. Izzy Smith. She specializes in women's health, a passionate runner, the host of the Behind the Uniform podcast, and to Kate's uh, absolute joy, a sausage dog owner. Um, she's an endocrinologist specializing in diabetes, thyroid disorders, hormonal health, um, and she's also established a robust following online thanks to her accessible and impassioned content online. And if you're keen to find out more about her, you can follow her at Dr. Izzy K. Smith. But again, Dr. Izzy, can you give us a little bit of an overview of who you are, how you got here, and I guess why you became a doctor and how did you end up specializing in endocrinology? love the introduction, especially about the sausage dogs, which I apologize if there's some growling in the background today. Um, so thank you guys. Yeah, no, I, um, I became a doctor actually. I had always wanted to be a physio. I was a gymnast when I was young and super sporty. Um, and then when I was 18, I got an autoimmune condi- kidney condition um, and I, like a glomerular nephritis. And I had some great experiences in the healthcare system and some absolutely woeful ones. And I wanted to be the doctor that gave people that you know, good experience. So that's kind of how I got into medicine. And then in terms of endocrinology, I thought about doing sports medicine at one point, but no, I didn't really want to fix injuries. I wanted to work with athletes. Um, and then I had this like, like eureka moment, I should do endocrinology um, because hormone health is related to, you know, athletes often get problems with their reproductive hormones, bone health, and then optimizing hormones in terms of recovery. And sports endocrinology is a bit of an, un- I think that's going to be a real, exciting area in sports because you know there's so much research about how do we train people best what programs but i think now a big thing is how do we optimize recovery and that's where endocrinology is also quite important also women we know nothing about our bodies we're taught you know we do high school pe and it's like pretty much like how to not fall pregnant and that's it um and so i really like working with women teaching them about their periods and menstrual cycles and more about you know that kind of part of their health Beautiful. And we'll touch on that um, a little bit later, but I think one thing that's incredibly interesting um, about you, like you're, you're a doctor, everyone knows doctors are incredibly busy, but you know, you've amassed over 30,000 followers on Instagram, dispelling myths, talking about health, sharing insight into, into life as a, as a physician. 
But as many of us know, social media is a bit of a, a double-edged sword with, you know, misinformation, people always like biting back at you and, you know, all the positive negatives that go with it. What would you say some of the common, I guess, drawbacks and advantages of having access to a bigger audience have been for you? Yeah, so I started my Instagram because I was kind of fed up with all the crazy stuff that I had also fallen for myself. Um, and I saw my non-medical friends also, you know, reading and learning about because at the moment, you know, people, we live in this real society that people want instant gratification. You know, they want to be an expert or they want to be, you know, earning lots of money or telling people what to do really without having done the work. Um, and so we're seeing people that come up with the crazier, it seems like the crazier the idea um, the bigger it grows, you know, and how do I make a name for myself? I'm just going to go completely against what any of the main normal guidelines say, and that's going to be called, you know, innovative and out there. Um, and so I was seeing a lot of that and I was getting fed up with it. Also, um, something I'm quite passionate about is mental health and junior doctors, and that's the other reason why I started this page. Um, sorry, my dogs are being a bit crazy in the background. But the Instagram, it's been great because, you know, I've studied for almost 15 years now and I want to be able to use all of that information beyond just the patients I see. Um, and also a lot of people get fed up with the healthcare system because they get 10 minutes with a doctor and things aren't explained. And I wanted to, you know, explain some common conditions, polycystic ovarian syndrome, that type of thing. So, you know, I love the Instagram every now and then it drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, like, you know, all the COVID like, misinformation, but... You know, I think we can, you know, we choose what we follow and I, uh, for me, social media is a very positive thing. And have you found like um, just as your following's grown, any like extra pressure on yourself to keep producing content or do you very um, much enjoy the longer yeah, People always ask me that, but I think, you know, I've got a full-time job as a doctor, so it's not like I'm relying on this Instagram yeah. and um, the Instagram actually really energises me, you know. Um, so I get a lot of joy from it and I've made, I've learned so much myself and, you know, often I do posts on topics I want to learn more about. So no, I don't really feel the pressure and every now and then I'm very upfront. I'm like, guys, I'm exhausted. I've got yeah. all these deadlines. I'm just going to post photos of my dogs for the next two weeks. <laughs> you know, normal content will resume soon. And do you find like, uh, even in, in clinic, like you like, I guess you said you've been studying medicine for the last sort of 15 years. And I guess that sort of coincided with the the rise of social media and, you know, I guess people diving into a bit few more myths and like clinging to these like fabled stories. Are you finding that you're having to deal and dispel these myths in clinic a little bit more when you're treating patients? Yeah. So, yes. And that's probably part of why I did make the Instagram as well because I saw that people were getting confused. You know, you go on Instagram, it's like carbs are bad. No, meat's bad. No, you know, lectins are bad. Um, and people often are really grateful for when things are explained, you know, properly. And then I go through the myths and take that time. Um, and I think having the Instagram is actually really beneficial for me as a doctor because I know what people are wondering about. Mm. So, yeah, and I think, um, you know, the information on the internet is a blessing. But, you know, if there's so much that we don't even know where to start, it can be so confusing for people too. Yeah, definitely. No, it's good that it's good that sort of there are doctors like yourself who are amassing these bigger followings and putting more quality information out there. I think it really does help a lot of people, 
people like Instagram, you know, it's got its pros and its cons, but if you search for more of the pros, it can be super, super beneficial. Like, um, you know, you, you, you're part of, or you've been on Femi.co, which is a, I guess, a female coaching only platform. And you did a Nike series about uh, menstrual cycles. And that's also something we've discussed extensively on our podcast, the, you know, the importance of stability in your cycles. Essentially, it's like your body's monthly report card, but you know, we we see it all the time in in our gym that you know some women think it's it's good not to get it. They consider it a bit of a chore. Um, do you often talk to your your patients about periods? And are there warning signs that something's not right, or you know, short yeah. of periods altogether? It's a great topic, and completely. We growing up, you don't you know you learn about pads or tampons or whatever, but you don't really understand what is actually going on in your body. And I think. In women's sports specifically, women's sports really taken off in the last 30 years or so. You know, it was only 1984 that the marathon was even introduced to the Olympics, even though it had been there since, you know, for men since the first Olympics. You know, it took 80 years for the women to get that event. And I think they thought, you know, women couldn't play sport. And then when they realised women could play sport, it was like, oh, but only if they're less womanly, you know. So I was like, well, if they don't get their period, that's probably a good thing. They're being more like men. Um, when really our hormones, you know, estrogen is really beneficial for muscle, you know, muscle growth, recovery, encourages glucose uptake into our, um, you know, type 1 muscle fibers. So the hormones themselves are actually really beneficial for performance. And then um, if we look at the underlying cause for why women are losing their period, it's, you know, because they're not fueling properly, they're not recovering. So like you say, it's a monthly report card that, you know, I'm nourishing my body well enough um, that it's saying I'd be healthy enough to fall pregnant. So, yeah, if anyone's listening, if you lose your period for more than three months, that's definitely a um, sign that you need to go and have it checked out. But there's other warning signs you can have beforehand. So, you know, changes in your cycle length, lighter periods, you know, could be indication that your body's going on to what we call relative energy deficiency. And that's, you know, name's pretty straightforward. You're not getting enough energy for what you're putting out. Your body tries to save energy. So it turns off the reproductive cycle because it's saying, you know, having a baby now, that would be a disaster for the body. Yeah, awesome. That's- Even in the, like, before you get to that point, I think it's interesting because I'm 34 and I only learned in the last year of training at Rebuild about, like, the strength changes in your cycle and, like, luteal and follicular phases and, like even this morning I was going, oh, I'm so tired and I just feel like I need to eat. And it's, oh, okay, I'm like coming up to my period. So having that self-compassion has only been yeah. something I've learned in the last year, which I think is insane. No, exactly. And I think it's so empowering for women to understand more about what's going on in their bodies and why they might be feeling or, you know, being hungrier or not sleeping well. I will say the one drawback is, and this has the menstrual cycle has been oversimplified that you know you should feel this in the first phase. Can I do a two-minute um, yeah, little education <laughs> cycle about the hormone cycle? So we make hormones, estrogen, from the little follicles developing um, in our ovaries. You know, and the follicle then becomes an egg. So the first half of our period or the cycle, so which is from you know the menstrual bleed until we ovulate. It's called the follicular phase because these little follicles are developing and they're producing estrogen only. Then we ovulate at around day 15, 14, 15 of the cycle, and then um, estrogen levels go back down. So estrogen is our main female hormone. 
Um, then after we ovulate, there's this little patch in the ovary called the corpus luteum, which is where the egg had been, and that produces progesterone, which is the other hormone. We produce progesterone because that's really required for uh, that uh, pregnancy to occur. Um, and, you know, so you ovulate, then you get the progesterone because you need the progesterone for the, like, the embryo to implant. That means that it's completely normal to not have progesterone in your first half of the cycle. Well, you can't. And um, you only produce progesterone in the second half. Um, and it's thought that progesterone is probably what's related to some of those, you know, not as good feelings um, in that second part of our cycle and PMS. It, you know, hormones can impact our neurochemistry and, you know, how our body regulates serotonin, dopamine. Um, progesterone increases our core body temperature by about 0.3 or 0.6 of a degree. They've done studies where, you know, people in the luteal phase, that second half, you know, their, their performance isn't impacted in normal temperature, but put them in 30 degree temperature. They don't perform as well because of that core body temperature. Uh, also, progesterone can make you a bit constipated, um, also makes you hungry. Um, so there's, you know, changes that we see at different parts of the cycle. And when we know them, we can, you know, either one, change our training to the cycle if we find that helps us, or two, like you say, just have a bit of compassion for yourself. But, you know, I'm feeling tired. I'm not going to push so hard. Um, and there's reasons why I feel tired. And I think, you know, that's part of this burnout culture, you know, like sleep when you're dead, you know, you know, there's no excuses, all of that. I think that's absolute bullshit. You know, that means we're not listening to our bodies and we can't perform well if we're not recovering. Sorry. I went off a bit of a spiel then. Oh, interesting. Yeah, super helpful because, again, something that, you know, 50% of the population have, but I'd say only 40, well, again, from a man's perspective, like even, you know, like my partner, you know, she's had a period for the majority of her life now, but she wouldn't know what's actually happening within the body. Mm. And I, yep. you know, for guys, it's so simple. Like you, we wake up in the morning with a, you know, bit of morning, morning glory and that's sort of our box. So can, it's actually really good that you say that because that is the uh, equiv- closest thing to equivalent of warning signs for low testosterone is if you're not waking up in their morning um, erection. So that, because I work with male athletes as well and, you know, cyclists and runners, they get really lean and their testosterone often goes low. Um, so that is the equivalent. But, yeah, I know I've had discussions with some of my male friends. I'm like, you guys have it so easy, you know, you don't have to do it. They're like, Izzy, do you know how hard it is when you get an erection when you don't want to? I'm like, seriously, <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> but um, just on the back of that, like hormone replacement therapy seems to be getting becoming more more prominent, not only for for males as, as we're getting a little bit older, but as a bit of um, – you know, a treatment method for, for, for females as they're transitioning into to menopause. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts around this? So um, it's interesting that uh, you could almost say it's a little bit of a design for, you know, people have different views, okay, whether it's a bit contentious of, you know, hormone replacement after menopause. But first I'll say it's interesting that men continue to have testosterone. You know, yes, levels go down a little bit as they get older, um, but they don't have, you know, whereas women completely stop making estrogen. Yeah. And, you know, everything is pretty much from evolution. And why is that the case? And it's probably that having women who couldn't fall pregnant um, was good for society because they could help with their younger children, they could help forage food. So, you know, from a society civilization perspective, it was helpful for women to, you know, have menopause. Is it good for the individual um, person's health to go through menopause and not have estrogen? You know, probably not. Estrogen is really beneficial 
or for heart disease, bone protection, um, and, you know, other aspects of health. And that's why we see you know, women rarely have heart attacks before menopause, but after menopause, you know, rates of heart disease are similar between men and women. Um, and then, you know, the topic of, you know, hormone replacement after menopause. First, I think it's really good that menopause is just getting some attention because, you know, it can be really challenging for women. And, you know, if we think periods are taboo, I feel like talking about menopause is taboo and even our cultural society around aging, you know, it's like such a focus on youth. Um, but hormone replacement, you know, a lot of women really struggle and they shouldn't have to suffer. And hormone replacement can be really, you know, great for the treatments, the hot flash symptoms. Um, I work, you know, where I work, I work a lot in bone health. So I do prescribe a lot of hormone treatment. Um, and we know if you are going to go on menopause hormonal do no treatment, if you go on it straight from menopause, um, it's very safe. But women shouldn't go on it if they've had menopause like 10 years ago. Um, and we've done studies that show, um, yeah, if you take it in your 60s or 70s, that's going to be associated with, you know, some increased risk of heart disease. But if you take it straight from menopause, there's, you know, actually lots of benefits. So um, I'm pretty pro hormone replacement. Um, and I think, you know, if it makes women feel good, you know, other symptoms, vaginal dryness. Um, and, you know, older people want to have sex too. You know, they shouldn't have to you know, go through all these unpleasant symptoms. So it's all about, um, you know, but it's not for everyone and it's about the individual and looking at risks and benefits and, you know, how they're experiencing, you know, what symptoms they've got. But, you know, it definitely is, you know, can be really beneficial for some people. And how would you advise them to sort of have that conversation with their GP if that's something that they're sort of considering or they're, you know, they, they think it might be a viable treatment option for yeah. them? So first I'd say anyone who has menopause before the age of 45, it's definitely recommended. Um, and some people can go through menopause quite early. So, you know, early 40s. And then if we say before 40, that's called premature ovarian insufficiency or premature ovarian failure. So anyone under 45, you know, they should have some hormone treatment until they're around 45 to 50. Um, and then people, if they are experiencing symptoms, you know, talk to your GP. Some GPs, you know, I, I feel sorry for GPs. They're expected to be experts in everything. Yeah. You know, like I think about, and, I, and it really pisses me off when specialists are like, oh, the GP did this. I'm like, do you know how to do a newborn baby check? You know, do you know what the vaccine schedule is for kids or, you know, how to talk to someone who's having a suicide crisis? Like, no, you don't. You know, these GPs are expected to know so much. Um, but I would recommend talking to your GP about, you know, could could this be menopause? You know, do they think maybe the, some hormone replacement could be beneficial? Just And if the GP doesn't have much experience in it, maybe say, you know, if you know someone who does or seeing someone like me, an endocrinologist. Oh, awesome. That's super, super helpful. I think, yes, yeah, I think having the conversation more around it is only going to serve our, you know, our population in a way, in a positive way. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's nothing empowering about not being informed. Um, and, you know, I talk about fertility because, you know, we don't really talk about much how women's fertility drops quite a lot because I think we don't want to put pressure on women. But it's not empowering to not know the information in the same way, you know, with menopause. It doesn't mean you have to go on treatment, but it's, you know, empowering to know that it is there. Um, I was just going to say, you know, for me, um, I, my big passion is bone health and osteoporosis, which is not a sexy topic, but, um, you know, osteoporosis is such a serious condition. And, you know, um, for women, a hormone replacement can be really beneficial in that sense that, you know, they don't need to go on osteoporosis medications, but it can help protect their bones a bit as well. So that's, you know, sometimes I start people on hormone treatment for, you know, mild osteoporosis. 
Fantastic. I guess just while we're on the, the women's health train, um, endometriosis is something that you've sort of posted about um, a fair bit, but, you know, not enough people know what it is and and um, one, in nine, one in nine women have it. How you can- have done your homework on my social media. I'm very impressed. Very good social media. <laughs> it's also like lumped in, right, endo and PCOS tend to just be put in the same category. They're completely not related conditions, but you're correct. They are lumped together. And I think it's because they're two conditions that are very common in women um, but have not got the respect, research and treatment they deserve. Um, And they're almost conditions that, you know, I look back when I was an intern doctor around 10 years ago, we'd have women come in in, you know, serious pain and they'd come into ED and, you know, we'd see if they had a, if they were having an appendicitis and we'd do some other tests and we wouldn't find anything. And I felt like they were really treated like they were making things up. And I look back at it now, I'm like, they would have had endometriosis. Like this, the understanding of the condition was so crap. And even polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's, you know, a condition that hasn't really been properly understood or, you know, taken seriously. So I think that's why they're lumped together because they are getting so much more attention now, but they're not related. Um, Endometriosis, I don't really look after it very much. It's um, a condition looked after by gynecologists generally, but that's when you've got, you know, tissue that's a little bit similar to the endometrium. That's the lining of the womb that sits in other places, so around the pelvic or the abdominal cavity. That's incredibly, incredibly painful. Um, and it's crazy. One in nine women experience this. And, you know, people, I've had friends that say that was, you know, pain is as bad as childbirth from it. Um, whereas polycystic ovarian syndrome is something I look after a lot, and that's associated with insulin resistance. And polycystic ovarian syndrome is a whole topic on itself, um, if you want to do another Question. podcast. <laughs> but it's a polycystic ovarian syndrome, a big topic, but it's really common, can happen in all types of body shapes and usually relate to insulin resistance. And what causes it? What causes it? And what what happens if it's sort of left untreated? Yeah, yeah. So, poly, it's a it's a syndrome, which means it's not like one particular cause and one particular diagnosis. But essentially, um, the ovaries are making too much androgens for male hormones, and people aren't ovulating. And it's to do with the messages from our brain to the ovaries not being completely correct. I, I don't want to get too uh, technical here, but there's one hormone called LH, which is too high compared to the, another hormone, FSH, from the brain, and it makes the ovaries not have a normal, nice menstrual cycle like we talked about before with the, you know, the follicular and the luteal. Generally, ovulation doesn't happen and the hormone levels are high. Um, and it's usually to do with insulin resistance. So if we've got high levels of insulin, that kind of can muck up the communication from the brain to the ovary. Um, but there's also really strongly genetic. And, you know, some people get the condition without insulin resistance and that's probably they've just got some, you know, pituitary ovarian dysfunction, I guess. Um, but I, it's great that you guys are a gym and this is something I really want to talk about because this is actually, you know, you asked me, do you have things that come up clinically that people have seen on social media that's wrong? I have people with polycystic ovarian syndrome who are like, oh, but I've been told I shouldn't do high-intensity exercise because it's, you know, too much stress and I've got PCOS and high-intensity exercise increases cortisol and that worsens insulin resistance. And I'm like, well, if that's true, no one should be doing high-intensity exercise, <laughs> especially people with type 2 diabetes. And it's like utter bullshit. And I think it was like these, there's all these like PCOS coaches and like, you know, PCOS 
you know, pages. And it's like telling people that high-intensity exercise is bad and, you know, yoga and walking. Nothing wrong with yoga and walking. But um, moderate to vigorous intensity has a lot of evidence for improving that insulin resistance with PCOS. Um, so, you know, your jogging, your kickboxing, your strength training, excellent for anything that's, you know, increasing you know, glucose uptake into our muscles um, and lowering our insulin levels, you know, is great. And cortisol, that's one, you know, another one that people, it's really demonised on social media and it shows that people don't understand how cortisol works. It's like cortisol is a stress hormone that helps us do high-intensity exercise. You know, if it, and then it goes back down. If it was high all the time, yes, that would be bad. But in the same way, when we exercise, our blood pressure goes up um, and then it goes back down. That's not saying, you know, we shouldn't exercise because it increases our blood pressure. That would be ridiculous. And people have these, like, simplistic mechanistic theories that don't have any evidence and they don't really understand the physiology. But I guess what I'm saying is PCOS, exercise is for PCOS, as well as, you know, healthy, um, low GI-type healthy carbohydrates because it's all about trying to decrease the levels of insulin. It's the high levels of insulin that cause that pituitary the messages from the brain to the ovary getting a little bit out of work. And but just with PCOS, um, it you know it causes high male hormones. So you know the issues are often like acne, um, some increased body hair, facial hair, and then infertility, um, which you know there's nothing wrong with the quality of their eggs and people can fall pregnant, but their egg just won't come out. So like I said, PCOS is a whole other podcast talk. Um, <laughs> but you know, for the for the gym, definitely, you know, high intensity exercise is great for it. Awesome. Now, thank you. That's super, super helpful. And again, something that, you know, we deal, you deal with a lot, like a lot of clients come in and say, I have, oh. I have PCOS, like, you know, <laughs> what can, can I do? And I guess having someone of, of your caliber sort of repeat the messaging that we try and put out is, yeah. is a lot better because it's hard for, again, oh. poor me, poor men, <laughs> having to <laughs> try and tell a female about her body. It's not a position that we always. Yeah. Well, and as well. When there's so much incorrect information, you can almost start believing it. Like, oh, maybe moderate to vigorous intensity exercise is bad, you know, and maybe it is too much stress on the body. And, you know, this is not me saying go and do a hit class twice a week, you know, twice a day, every day. That would be ridiculous. Our bodies need recovery. But, you know, yeah, moderate to vigorous intensity, PCOS, excellent. There is a little bit of evidence, more evidence that the more sustained cardiovascular exercise like jogging or swimming rather than hit type classes might be a little bit more benefit for PCOS but you guys are trainers you know the best exercise is the one that people like doing Definitely. so you know whatever you can get into and you know make into your regular routine is the best one for you we sort of touched on this uh, a little bit earlier but it seems to be a growing stigma around you know uh, people taking medication for their ailments you know it's almost popularized at the moment um in like you know, in our Instagram coaches fields where, you know, people are prescribed antidepressants and the coaches are telling them not to take it because they can do it the, the sort of natural way. Makes me so angry. Yeah, yeah. Obviously it's in- incredibly dangerous and sort of misses the point sometimes, but yeah, obviously you're angry. What are your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Let well, it rip. Yeah. I, I actually, one of the first posts I did was because I had a friend who has quite severe depression and she saw an osteopath and nothing wrong with osteopath. I see an osteopath, but that's just what this person happened to be. And they said to her like, oh, you're on an SSRI. You know, you can take a handful of almonds and um, that will be the same. And this particular friend is actually a, is a lawyer and she said, so if I went off my antidepressant and suicided, would that be your fault? <laughs> and I think the person was like, oh. Um, I think part of this is coming from 
it's interesting as a doctor because sometimes people come into my room and I say, I give them all this lifestyle advice and then they're like, oh, so that's what you're going to do, you know. But then, you know, and but then we hear and, you know, like I've spent, you know, how much money and you're just telling me to like go to bed earlier and exercise more. Um, but then we hear people, you know, grumpy because all doctors ever do is prescribe tablets. Yeah. And um, I think this, this answer has two problems. One we doctors definitely need to do more lifestyle things. The current system of care is not supporting that at all. You know, how can doctors be expected to examine someone, get a history, diagnose them, and get management and, you know, talk about all of their lifestyle in a 15-minute appointment? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Um, I'm very pro non-bulk billing doctors. Like, you know, I wish that that wasn't the case, but I think realistically the current system is if you're going to see a doctor and do that really holistic, you need to see the same doctor regularly. And, you know, probably you might have to pay a gap because doctors cannot make any money because, you know, they're working privately and paying the reception staff everything if they're bulk billing everyone. And I wish it wasn't like that, but that is the reality. Um, but, yeah, so I think there's one, there's issues in the healthcare system that doctors don't focus on, on lifestyle. Also, I think doctors sometimes they're not that lifestyle focused themselves. You know, if you don't like exercise, you're probably not going to prescribe it. And I'm actually doing a study at the moment. I'm looking at barriers to why doctors don't prescribe exercise more. I'll let you know when it's published. Yeah, um, So I think that's part of it. But then, and I think doctors sometimes do probably, you know, prescribe things when and not going to lifestyle more. But then the other thing is, and it goes back to what I said, you know, people are wanting self-gratification. They're wanting to be an expert without any proper qualification. So how can they be an expert when they're not? You know, it's going to be to focus on, you know, supplements or like everything that, you know, an actual doctor can't do. No, mm-hmm. no everything a doctor they can't do what a doctor does, which is prescribe tablets. So yeah. they're sneering prescribing tablets because, you know, that supports their agenda yeah. and that supports what they're doing because it's like, well, and it's interesting now they're happy to organise blood tests because they can, and I'm being general, I'm generalising, but I'm just thinking of a few people that, you know, people have shown me their Instagrams. So now they'd organise blood tests for people and they make these really weird interpretations of the blood test because they can do that, you know, they can get labs done but they can't prescribe tablets. So they're trying to be medical and that they're getting blood tests done yeah. um, and they can prescribe supplements and they can prescribe other things, but they're never going to be able to prescribe medication. So they're smearing medications as bad and that supports their, you know, what they're doing. Um, so that is my two-pronged answer to that. Um, one, doctors doing not enough on lifestyle. Two, um, people, you know, opt, uh, profiting on that and making their business and their, you know, whatever they're doing. Um with that frame of mind that medications are bad. And I would just like to say as well, it's interesting when we talk about, and I have this with patients where they're like, oh, like I don't, I just want a natural treatment. No, I'll have a lady who's literally tripped and fallen on the ground and broken her hip. You know, you shouldn't break your hip from falling on the ground. And, you know, there's an increased mortality risk with a hip fracture. So, you know, statistically you're more likely to die in the next 12 months um, and the more fractures you have, that risk goes up. And I'll try and say to her, like, I want you to go on osteoporosis medication. Oh, I really want something natural. And, like, my answer is that would, this assumption that natural is better and our bodies know what to do is this assumption that the human body is perfect, as if we're these evolved to be, like, flawless, and we have it. Like, our bodies aren't perfect. We get genetic mutations. We get health problems. We have not evolved to be perfect beings. And, you know, with the invention of medicine, we're living, like, 30, 40 years longer. You know, a few hundred years ago, the, like, if you had a child, like there was a one in three chance they wouldn't live till they were five. So, you know, medicine, and that's not just medicine, it's sanitation and lots of things. But 
Um, the human body isn't perfect. And, you know, we are, we're fighting with evolution, you know. In the past, people just would have died. And, you know, we're changing that. And to be honest, I'd much prefer to have my family member live till they were longer than, you know, do my part for evolution <laughs> and have them die earlier. So, yes, anyway, so that's, and that's, we are living in this point where this, it's called natural fallacy that we assume natural must mean better. But, you know, like lots of natural things kill us. Like, you know, uh, heroin is natural and so is uranium and so is strychnine. You know, all these other things. So it's, yeah, but um, I think it's, yeah, a combination of issues with the medical system being, being you know, taken advantage of by people pushing that certain agenda. Yeah, I think me and Kate were, were discussing it yesterday. Like, you, know, you can some, have someone who is, you know, so depressed that on the, on the brink of doing something, you know, obviously incredibly harmful to themselves, then to give them an antidepressant medication to help sort of aside some of those feelings will give them a chance to improve their lifestyle down the track. It doesn't, it's not always like a problem solve. It's a chance. One or the other. It's not lifestyle or tablets. And that's what I say to people all the time. We need to stop this dichotomy of it being, you know, lifestyle versus mainstream medicine. You know, it's both. And people that know me, like, I run every day. I eat really healthy. I'm really passionate about that. But that doesn't mean you can't also, yeah, benefit from tablets. And it's interesting with the mental health because people love quoting studies being like, oh, you know, when they compare them to placebo, there wasn't that much difference for antidepressants and mild moderate depression. But what we really see is some people do not respond at all and some people respond super duper well. And that can make it seem like, oh, there's not much benefit. But, you know, some people respond great, some people not so much. But, um, yeah, no, it, I think the mental health, I've got a bit of a family history of mental health problems and I get really upset when people kind of feel shame, like, oh, you're just not doing enough, you're not being healthy enough. And, you know, something that really is quite strongly genetic. So, yeah. and yeah, and I know some like elite athletes that are on antidepressants. So, you know, there's only so much sport you can do. It's only so healthy. It's for some people, it's really quite chemical. Yeah. And I guess one of our one of our final topics, I know it's not as cool as it used to be, but I'm purely just curious around um, what the COVID impact was like for you in being in the healthcare sector, being someone on the inside. Like, is it still an issue now or that it's not sort of yeah. it's not in our faces as much every day i'm really glad you asked that question um maybe not so much for me but for like all the nursing staff who are still pulling double shifts who are still you know every time i go onto the wards i can hear a nurse calling up being like hey do you mind coming in and doing extra shift we're two down so i guess one the impact from covid and you know i i didn't have too much of that experience i Miss the you know really busy COVID times and now because of working in technology it's not too you know I'm not on the ward as much in ED and that type of thing um, but it was you know like for everyone stressful and hard and um, I you know when it initially happened I was just really worried that it would happen like what was in America or Italy before we got the vaccine and you know they were having just having so many people die and as a doctor that's your worst nightmare to be like I had to choose who lives or die because we don't have enough ventilators. And that's what's happening in other places. Um, so I think we are just so lucky in Australia that we were in Ireland and we had access to vaccines before, um, you know, it really spread. Um, but, you know, for my impact personally now, um, you know, there's still COVID and I, I, it's crazy. I did a war shift a while ago and you know, I had someone in their 80s who has asthma and has COVID and he's not vaccinated because his daughter doesn't believe in vaccines. And, you know, this guy we're having to, you know, I was getting ICU to review him and, you know, 
I don't know, I don't even know what happened to him actually in the end, which is, you know, that's medicine. You go in and see people at the edge of their life and then don't even know what happened. Um, but now the impact, a lot of nursing staff left because they were so burnt out. You know, having to wear PPE for 12 hours, you know, you don't even have it. You, you like you're in the all PPE, and then you're like, oh my god, I haven't drunk water all day because it's just such a pain. And so I really take my hat off to nurses that were working on that front line because they were pulling, you know, incredible hours. And a lot of and people are going, oh, all these nurses have quit because they didn't get the vaccine. Like, no, all these nurses have quit because they were mentally at the very edge of coping and then being pushed even further. And then to have, you know, people protesting on the streets saying, like, this is all, you know, a big scam. Like, it was it's, it was just really hard. Um, so, yeah, for me personally, not too bad. Um, but, yes, we are still seeing the impact. There are still a lot of nurses quit. So, you know, just so burnt out. Um, and people are still having COVID and unwell. Um, but, you know, not as bad as it was before. No, thanks for sharing that. It was good to get – it's good to get some insight. Like, we've got some – obviously, a fair few nurses at the gym and it was just – like they were, you could just see they were just oh. under, under the pump. The stories that they'd have around, yeah, like like you were saying, like the the shifts that they were having to pick up. I think you know one of our nurses would do like a, you know, one of our normal shifts, then go to another clinic to help with the vaccinations and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And it's, yeah, all the stories you didn't you didn't see. We get to hear about all the anti vaxxers and all that kind of stuff, but you don't you don't get to hear the stories from the people in the front line because they're on the front line doing the work. <laughs> exactly. That's what I say. Like, and people are, why do you think there's not more doctors doing like what you do? I'm like, because they're too busy bloody working and doing their exams and, you know, trying to publish papers. We don't, yeah, it's, um, but, yeah, no, I take my hat off so much to those real frontline staff and nurses in the ED and ICU and wards. They, I don't like the word hero because they are normal people, but, yeah, we owe them so much. Uh, and again, we're, you know, speaking of work, we are incredibly mindful and respectful of your time. But um, I guess one last thing for us is what's next for Dr. Izzy? Oh, thank you. Well, I've got a roster day off today. So I'm getting the dentist done, doing your podcast, and getting my car service. So <laughs> getting lots of things. Life done. admin. <laughs> Life admin, yeah. Um, but what is next for me? I. I'm kind of trying to decide if I go into a PhD in the kind of female athlete sports area or maybe go more into private practice. I'm still kind of deciding. Um, but I think in life it's good to not make too many plans too far ahead because things are always changing and something that might suit us now might not be what we want in a few years' time. Um, but I, yeah, I'm really loving working in that athlete space and wanting to continue being in that field um and hopefully i'm but also want to maybe stop working so much so i can push my own sport a bit um you know get a few marathon pbs and maybe do my first ironman so there are some you know personal goals for me too oh, awesome. and if people want to follow or find you on any platforms is instagram the best one yeah instagram's the best one so it's uh doctor spelled the long way d-o-c um t-o-r easy case me and I do a few blogs on a website every now and then, but unfortunately I've been a bit lazy and haven't uploaded them. Um, but, yeah, mainly Instagram's the main one. What would you say is if you had a catchphrase, what would it be? Oh, God, you're putting me on the spot, <laughs> Caitlin. A catchphrase, you've got to give me a little bit more context. Like you know, like what you say to patients, I guess, or, um, yeah, there's key phrases. Like I make fun of the boys a lot with their speaking to clients and Sean's is like, you've got to get more sleep. Are you sleeping enough? If I say, um, don't feel like, is he sleeping enough? 
I think there's um, like recurring themes that you find yourself saying over and over. One I always say is there's no such thing as a bad cry. It's always a good cry. People cry to me and they're like, I'm so sorry for crying, doctor. I'm like, no, get it out. It is always a good cry. Um, the other phrase I say to my athletes is you don't get fitter and stronger from the training you do. You get fitter and stronger from the training you recover from. Um that is one. And then the third one, oh, now I need something a bit like jovial and light. Yeah. Oh. Sausage dog, uh, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, life's too short not to sit in bed and drink coffee and pat your sausage dog every now and then. <laughs> Enjoy life. Slow down. Yeah. Um, no, it's cliche. I've got it. It's about the journey, not the destination. I used to be so uh, goal-orientated and, you know, I really realised that, that's not the best way to be because sometimes your goals don't suit you and your life falls apart if that goal's not working for you. So, yeah, really focus on the present and the short-term goals and, you know, the rest of your life place. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so You're much. Very enlightening. No. <laughs> Thanks so much. Sorry if I rambled a bit. I hope guys, um, we love it. People, That's what podcast is for. Add some value. All right. Thanks so much, guys. See you. Thanks. Later.